I invite you to hear these words of the Apostle Paul. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. I think this is one of the most important passages on the Christian life in all of the New Testament, because it answers a question that all of us have asked at one time or another. Why is it taking me so long to get better? We've all wondered that, haven't we? I thought by now that I wouldn't be struggling with my anger. Why is it taking me so long to get better? I'm still tempted to drink too much. Why is it taking me so long to get better? I go to church every Sunday, but I still have so many doubts. Why is it taking me so long to get better? I thought I'd be a better person by now, but I've got so many bad habits. Why is it taking me so long to get better? I'm a bitter person, even though I cover it up most of the time. Why is it taking me so long to get better? See, many of us wish we had an answer to that question. We might assume that after committing our life to Jesus Christ, we would rapidly sprout wings and become a saint. But it doesn't happen that way. God has ordained that even though we are being made in the likeness of Jesus, it generally happens a little bit at a time. And sometimes that little bit seems to be very little indeed. See, when the people of Israel entered the Promised Land, God did not allow them to conquer it all at once, because there were many entrenched enemies in the hills of Canaan. The Jews had to fight for every inch of this new territory, and then they had to fight to keep what they conquered. It took them many years to possess the entire land. And I really believe that's a picture of the Christian life. There is victory to be had, but it will not come easily or quickly. We are engaged in warfare with spiritual foes who will not easily yield their ground. Whether we wish to admit it or not, we will struggle with sin and temptation as long as we live. There's no reprieve from this struggle, and that's one major reason why it takes so long for any of us to get better. In order to help us grasp this truth, let's break down uh, this passage this morning into two crucial statements. First, struggle is a normal part of the Christian life. Many Christians prefer not to hear this truth because they want a Christianity that proclaims all happiness all the time. They want a guarantee that all their problems are going to be solved if they just follow the right formula. But that's not realistic nor is it biblical. We are, as the scripture says, to fight the good fight of faith, to put on the whole armor of God, to stand in the evil day and endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Verse 17 is very clear in this regard. It says, two principles are at war within us. One is called flesh, the other is called the spirit. 
And these two principles are in constant, unrelenting war with each other. The flesh is Paul's term for the sinful nature that's inside of all of us because we are descendants of Adam and Eve. And that sinful nature, he says, is hostile to God. It's selfish and it's generally evil. And when we commit our life to Jesus Christ, we become new creations by virtue of the Holy Spirit who comes to live within us. And even though the dominating power of the flesh is broken, that tug of evil remains within us. As one writer put it, evil desires arise like the flesh from smoke, from, uh, rise from the fl- our flesh like smoke does from a chimney. To say it another way, flesh is what we are by our natural birth, but the spirit comes by a spiritual birth. Now, I draw several conclusions from this. One, our flesh and the spirit are fundamentally opposite. They don't cooperate with each other. The conflict between our flesh and spirit is continual, and it's inevitable. And three, this conflict produces conflicting desires in us. So with the same mouth, we both curse and we bless. With the same spirit, we love and we hate. We serve and we steal. We proclaim Christ and then we lie to our friends. We read our Bible and then we watch a dirty movie. We sing in the choir and we go off to have an affair. You see, the way this gets played out differs from individual to individual, but all of us feel that struggle in one way or another. Some people think if I just come to Jesus Christ, all of my problems will be solved. I'll never, ever struggle again. Well, think again. If you come to Christ, your problems are sometimes just starting. As a person far from God, you sin because that's your nature, but as a Christ follower, you have a new nature that's always pulling you toward God while that tug of the flesh remains with you. So in one sense, Christians have a conflict far greater than people far from God ever know about. Our rewards are great, but so is the struggle. In one sense, we ought to praise God for that war within. The deadly feud between flesh and spirit is one sign that we are a child of God. Do you desire to be holy? Do you want to please the Lord? Is there a hunger in your heart to know Jesus and to love him? Do you desire to live a better life even though you can't seem to quite attain it? If the answer is yes, then there's evidence that you are a Christ follower. Despite your personal failings, if you truly want to do what God wants you to do, you may rest in the knowledge that you are a child of God. Your struggle with sin is proof of that divine heritage. But if you can swear and hate and steal and mock and lust and think all sorts of bad thoughts and speak harsh words and do all of those things and feel nothing inside, then you just may be without hope in the world. Let me tell you the story of a young man who's in his mid-twenties. Graduated some years ago from one of the finest Christian schools in the Midwest. During his days on that school's campus, he was known and respected as a Christ follower. People were positively impacted by his life and by his example. One day he wrote an open letter to his friends in which he declared that he had lost his faith. 
And he was also writing to announce that he was coming out of the closet. One word in his letter appears six times in various forms, and that word is struggle. This young man spoke of his struggle with sexual temptation, his struggles with his feelings, his struggles to live out the Christian life, and in the end, his struggle with life itself. Finally, he decided that the struggle was not worth the effort, and so he decided to stop struggling. As he came to the end of his letter, his, he asked his friends to accept his decision, to not quote Bible verses to him or try to convert him. He wanted to keep his friendships as long as his friends would accept him. And he closed this letter with two sentences that said, I am finally being true to myself, and I have never been more at peace. As I read his story, a couple of thoughts came to mind. One, the fact that he was struggling so much about his choices in life and even with life itself maybe should have triggered some questions about why and what didn't feel right to him. I know from experience that sometimes the peace that we think we feel after certain decisions is merely the calm before the storm. The Bible says in Proverbs 14:12, there is a path before each person that seems right but in the end, it leads to death. So not every decision we make is a good decision. Just because something seems good doesn't make it so. And not every decision we make is blessed by God. We have to make decisions as best we can while reading and studying God's Word to find our way forward. Secondly, this young man had fallen victim, I think, to some very bad theology. Somewhere along the way, he picked up the idea that all struggles in life are bad and that the way to deal with those feelings of temptation was just to end the struggle by giving into it. And in some ways, this is the inevitable result of a faulty teaching that's been around for a while that the Christian life is just one big party. Some contemporary preaching on this topic seems to imply that a Christian may reach a place in life where all of our struggles just disappear. But that kind of teaching is false and unbiblical. It's also dangerous because it promises something that it can never deliver. It sets Christians up for failure and immense discouragement when they seem to, they can't get the victory over a certain sin. Now, it's only a short jump from this wrong teaching to the conclusion that Christianity itself must be false since the struggles of life continue. And certainly this young man expected some sort of deliverance from his feelings, from his temptations that, he, that never came. And then third, there was a deeper issue. I think that this young man may have been using these struggles as an excuse to indulge the desires of his human nature, something we wouldn't accept as reasoning in any other area of our life. Let's suppose a person says, you know what, I have a terrible problem with cursing and bad language. I love to use dirty words. I love to say outrageous things. For years I've struggled to control my tongue, but I keep losing the battle. I'm tired of struggling, so I've decided to just stop struggling and start cursing all the time. If you want to remain my friend, you'll have to accept my foul mouth and my way of life. It's just the way I am. I feel peace about that decision. We wouldn't accept that argument, now would we? Or suppose someone said, I love to rob banks. For years I've dreamed about being Al Capone. 
Seems like a lot of fun. I love the challenge of breaking into a bank and walking out with a lot of money. I fought the urge to rob banks, but I'm, now I'm tired fighting, and I want my friends to know that I am a bank robber, and I have peace about that. We wouldn't buy that for a second. You get the idea. We wouldn't accept this sort of reasoning in any other area, but when someone says, this is who I am, I'm just a cheater, and that's who I am. I'm just a liar, that's who I am. I'm an abuser, that's me. But we're, and somehow they think we're supposed to say that's okay. But you know what, it's not okay. We ignore God's word at our own peril. Our ongoing struggles and temptations are not in themselves sinful. We are not condemned by God because we struggle. It's not the struggle that matters, it's how we deal with it, it's how we respond. The sin is often in the giving in, not in the fight itself, and no one escapes this conflict. No one can avoid the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. No one gets a Christian life that's free from outward pressure and inward turmoil. And there's no spiritual experience that can magically propel us to a state in where we will never struggle with sin. That won't happen until we finally get to heaven. Between now and then, we walk a very difficult road fighting every day to stay on the right path. And in the end, it's impossible to remain neutral. The Holy Spirit can only help us when we depend on him. We have choices to make, flesh or spirit, right or wrong, good or evil, my way or God's way, every single day. Do you know what? The struggle also produces some benefits. It's critical to remember that God allows the struggles in our life as part of the, our ongoing spiritual growth. Strange as it may seem, we need to struggle because that's the only way we can grow in grace. And here are a few benefits to consider about struggling. First, it reveals to us our inherent weakness. Secondly, it kills our pride and arrogance. It humbles us. It forces us to cry out to God for help. It reveals the uselessness of human effort apart from God's strength. It teaches us to rely on God alone. It causes us to love the Savior who delivers us from sin. It leads us to a life of continual repentance. It makes us long for heaven. It prods us to use all the means of divine grace. It encourages us to develop habits of holiness. It forces us to lean on our brothers and sisters to help us out. And it leads us to look for daily solutions instead of instant miracles. Verse 16 says, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. That opens up a vast area of truth. In the, some other translations, it encourages us to walk in the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is a person who resides in us from the moment of our conversion. The Spirit's role is to create in us a new desire to, uh, to live like Jesus, to give us the power to obey God. It is the Spirit who lives in us and makes us more like Christ. Paul's point is that the law could never do this. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And our hope is not in a set of rules, but in the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. By his power, we can obey God in the midst of our ongoing struggle with sin. Now, the Greek word for walk or guide means to direct us from one place to another. And it's written in the present tense, meaning keep on walking, keep on guiding. 
encouraging us to take a series of small steps in the same direction over a long period of time. It implies steady progress in one direction by means of deliberate choices over a period of time. To walk in the Spirit means something like let your conduct be directed by the Holy Spirit. Make progress in your life by relying on God's Spirit. It has the idea of allowing the Holy Spirit to guide every part of our daily life. Walking is slow. It's not flashy, is it? Sometimes walking can be tedious and dull and boring and downright, you know, drab. And yet, if we've, if we've got to get from point A to point B, walking will get us there eventually. All we have to do is start walking and don't stop until we get there. Several years ago, a woman told her pastor that she was in the grip of an addiction that was destroying her life. And by her own admission, she, had, she was in deep trouble because of a lot of wrong choices in her life. Her pastor felt like he knew her pretty well, but he had no idea that any sort of problem like this, uh, that she had been dealing with this, none of her friends knew it either. She was far, far gone into the darkness of addiction with feelings of guilt and deep despair, just wasn't getting any better. And after listening to her story, her pastor told her that she didn't get where she was overnight. It took thousands, literally thousands of wrong choices over a long period of time to get where she was. And he also told her that she wouldn't be set free overnight. She would have to take thousands of tiny steps toward the light before she would ever be free of the darkness. And that leads me to a liberating insight. Every day, we all make thousands of choices, don't we? Most of them seem tiny and inconsequential. Certainly, most of them seem to have, maybe a, a, don't have a moral component. They're just little decisions that we have to make, like, will I get out of bed today? Will I take a shower? Will I eat breakfast? If I do, what, what am I going to eat? Will I drive to work? What am I going to listen to while I drive? Who am I going to talk to today? How will I relate to my coworkers today? Where will I eat lunch? What time do I leave work? When I get home, am I going to talk to my spouse or am I going to sit down and play with the kids? See, on and on it goes. All the way down to something like, am I going to tie my shoes and tuck in my shirt? today. But the crucial insight is that there's no such thing as a neutral decision. Every choice we make is intricately linked with every other choice before it and every other choice after it. All of these little choices are not really little at all. Every choice we make either takes us in a step toward the light or in a tiny step toward the darkness. And even the meaningless, seemingly meaningless choices lead us in one direction or the other. In fact, we can't always see the implications of a decision, but that doesn't mean they're not important. And this pastor told the woman that in order to get out of the darkness, she needed to go home and start making tiny steps toward the light. And he warned her that the next morning, when she woke up, she would still be in the darkness. And so any steps she needed to take would be steps made in faith. And the next day, she would just be still in the darkness. 
And the day after that, she would still be in the darkness. But if she kept taking steps, little steps toward the light, in a few days, in a few weeks, in a month, in a year, she would wake up someday and see little streaks of light on the horizon. And one day sooner or later, she would, she'd keep walking toward the light. She would wake up and see her room filled with the blazing light of God's love shining around her. And a few months later, she wrote the pastor a wonderful note, and she said that she left his office that day and was determined to take those tiny steps toward the light, even though it was very difficult at first. And for many days, it seemed like she was simply walking in the darkness. But God is always faithful to his obedient children, and slowly the light began to dawn, and one day she woke up to find her whole life bathed in the light of God. She had been set free from that addiction. And she's been walking in the light ever, ever since. Now let me say that very clearly, walking in the Spirit is not some mystical experience reserved for just a few Christians. It's God's design for normal Christian living. It's nothing more than choosing by God's grace to take tiny steps toward the light each and every day. And those tiny steps don't remove the struggle, but they do allow us to walk in the light even though we feel the tug to go in the other direction. And the pool of the darkness is always going to be with us in one form or another, but by the Spirit's power, we can choose to walk in the light every single day. So what should we do in light of the struggle? Well, we need to stay humble. We need to be praying. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to take little steps in the right direction every single day. And when we fall, we just need to get up and keep moving forward toward God. Remember that our struggle is not sinful. God allows it, so we will look to him for daily solutions instead of instant miracles. The struggle itself is evidence that we belong to him. We groan, the scripture says, even though we wait for a better day. And we hope in God because where sin abounds, grace is more abundant. Grace reigns in our life as we follow God's Spirit. Through the struggle with sin, our soul is made strong, and we are being made fit for eternity with God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, without your powerful Spirit, we are no match for our human nature and for the flesh, but your Spirit is more powerful than the flesh. So show us how to walk in that Spirit, to be led by your Spirit, and lift us above our lower nature to the heavenly plans that you have for us. Keep us from the works of the flesh and help us to walk in the Spirit each and every day. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.